From war across the globe to regulating speech to printing trillions of dollars, the American regime accepts no limits on its power. As Ludwig von Mises understood, the state will take as much power as the people will let it. And in recent years, the American regime has clearly concluded it can get away with unilaterally adopting vast new powers. Join Michael Rechtenwald, Ted Galen Carpenter, Jonathan Newman, and more for a Mises Institute event in Nashville, Tennessee on September 23rd, dedicated to this siege of power and one of Ron Paul's favorite lines, truth is treason in the empire of lies. Tickets begin at $95. Use code HA23 for $45 off admission. Get yours at Mises.org slash Nashville 23. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Peter, welcome back to the Human Action Podcast. Thank you for having me back, Bob. Well, I saw a recent piece that you did for Mises.org, or maybe it was reprinted by them, about uh, the economic woes that may be ahead for China. And I thought this is a pretty good topic. I know you've done a bunch on this. So can you just kind of give the listeners and viewers a summary of what your stance is and what some of the talking heads are saying about China right now? Yeah, so China has run into a patch of trouble here starting a couple weeks ago. You know, about a month ago, the sort of chatter about China on the Internet was about how the BRICS group was going to depose America and... You know, the dollar was done, America was done, and all of that may be true, but what's interesting now is that China just completely fell over. So the government has now ordered banks to support the yuan, to to go out into forex markets and actually buy up the yuan because it's dropped about 5%, which is too fast for comfort. Stocks are plunging. They also told told, uh, fund managers to stop selling stocks. In fact, the Hang Seng Index, it's now lower than it was in 2006, right? Which a lot of people in their heads still have this idea that China is just a miracle economy. And that's 17 years. That's starting to look like Japan. And so sort of big picture what happened in China is that they shoveled out just truckloads of debt. Uh, out in the companies and specifically in the home builders. Home building is a much, much bigger industry in China, maybe three times bigger than it is in the U.S. So they plowed all this easy money into that. Now they're looking at $50 trillion of non-financial debt. So China is absolutely swimming in it. They've got this giant so-called shadow banking sector, which just means money managers and funds that are not part of the um, sort of standard banking system. It's not necessarily gray market or anything. That's just the term for it. Uh, but a lot of those companies in China are very shady. So they're kind of black boxes. They give you a promise. We're going to give you 15% on your money, you know, which here would be considered basically Ponzi marketing. Uh, so we've got some of those falling. Some of these massive home builders are falling. These guys are carrying like 200, 300 billion in debt. I mean, these are enormous numbers. And so the Chinese government has seen this slow motion train wreck coming for a while. And they've been kind of trying to restrict credit and trying to head it off uh, because they they felt like it was going to implode. And it looks like, you know, that's that 
that's always a risk. It's also a risk in this country, of course, when you when you dump money out into the markets and then you try to pull back on it. Uh, it's an art trying to do that without sending things over the edge. So at the moment, it looks like a lot of things in China are uh, in danger of going over the edge. Okay, can you give us a sense, since this is the Human Action Podcast, does this dovetail like with standard Austrian business cycle theory? Is this the kind of thing that, oh, yeah, did did they have like an easy money policy in right. the past that spawned all these mail investments, or was it more just a story of government subsidies that got turned down? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would call it both. Um, usually when we're talking in the U.S., I think the amount of fiscal uh, malinvestment, right, uh, it's it's smaller in this country than it is in China uh, or maybe in Europe, countries that are more sort of state-led in their industrial policy. So usually in the U.S. context, when we're talking about malinvestment, I think we're generally thinking of like the Fed manipulating interest rates. In the case of China, of course, you do have that. So the government is permanently trying to artificially stimulate the economy. And then, of course, they have to deal with the consequences of, the la- of that just like here. But then on top of that, China has this massive layer of sort of fiscal malinvestment where the, what do they call it, financial repression, uh, the, the government basically encourages households to oversave and then it channels that money to favored industries. So the government identifies particular industries like semiconductors or green energy. Uh, housing is is sort of an easy place to park a couple trillion. Uh, they also pump a lot into infrastructure projects. So, um, you know, you've got the high-speed train network, for example. When they started building it, it was kind of logical. They were going from, you know, Beijing to Shanghai. And then they just kind of kept going. So now they've got these milk run routes where, you know, you've got billion dollar trains that almost nobody is riding. So by pushing all of those trillions into this state led development, I think now it's kind of a combination where they've got the easy money malinvestments at the same time as they have these sort of industrial uh, planning malinvestments. I've seen some pictures like they look like ghost towns. Oh, where they yeah. just build all sure. this stuff. Right. I mean, how do you have a sense of how bad is the mismatch? Is it the kind of thing that, yes, of course, if they had a free market that wouldn't have been built, but is it the kind of thing with, oh, they're, people will move in there. It's just, it's uneconomical, or is it literally, no, they built a bunch of housing that nobody's going to be using for the next 10 years? Yeah. The, I think most of us, uh, of us had assumed that that housing was basically being built too soon, uh, but that eventually somebody was going to move into that. You know, so in that case, you would just say that um, the interest rates were too low. Uh, but I mean, we're now years later and you've got entire city sized developments that are still empty. The investors, which are usually Chinese households that, uh, you know, put in the money to build these things, uh, about 70% of household savings in China are in real estate. So from their point of view, that's basically a savings account, and sooner or later, somebody is going to buy it. But of course, that might work at a low interest rate when you first make that investment, but that's not necessarily going to work out in the long run. Then on top of that, what's happening now is that because we have this sort of fiscal malinvestment unwinding, property prices in a lot of places in China are now dropping 20 or 30%. 
So the Wall Street Journal made a stab of estimating, you know, government numbers say it's a lot smaller than that, 3 5%. And Wall Street Journal was sort of surveying different experts who generally think that it's, it's a lot higher than that. And just sort of, you know, surveying public prices in some of the major cities in China, they're looking at something like a 20 or 30% decline. So if 70% of household savings, right, that's people's retirement accounts functionally, the social safety net in China is a lot smaller than it is in the West. If those are all parked in those kinds of properties and those are dropping 30%, not only is that, you know, that's going to savage consumer spending, right? people are going to stop buying cars and things, uh, people could go in the street for those kinds of movements. You know, if we compare that to... Hmm. 2008, it was nothing like the entire country losing a third of their wealth. Now, is that, um, can you give us a sense, I think for people who have not lived or at least invested in China, like it's it's hard for us to know because it depends who I talk to. And these are all, you know, people that are fans of the free market and they understand laissez-faire capitalism and whatnot. And some people will tell me, oh yeah, don't be fooled by the communist party china is a capitalist country they're doing all these privatization reforms that you know it's it's not your mouse china anymore Mm -hmm. it's a a booming mecca and you know it's just going to keep getting better from here because they started from such a low level and every time they whereas other people are like no it's run by there's the communists are you know in charge of the place it's very tightly restricted you can't get your money in and out very easily you know that kind of thing so or maybe it's those two things aren't literally contradictory. So go ahead. Can you just give us a sense of what, how should we think of the Chinese economy at this point? Yeah, I think it's a mixed bag. So that story that, you know, they're, they're communists in name only kind of, um, that was true from about the 1990s up until president Xi came in. So you had, I think it was four presidents where each one was running the show for about eight years or so. And they were extraordinarily free markets. So they took their cue from Deng Xiaoping, uh, who formally he was like the minister of bridges or something. Okay, but, you know, this is kind of how it's done in China. Like the leader often Mm -hmm. isn't isn't actually the guy sitting on the throne. Uh, So Deng ran things for, boy, I think about 15 years. And Deng's point of view was you've got to make the country rich. So he had the famous line, it doesn't matter if the cat is black or white, if it catches mice. And this actually is consistent with thousands of years of Chinese history where the sort of philosophy was that the government should be the all-wise, all-ruling, all-powerful, but if it doesn't bring home the bacon, right, if it doesn't create prosperity, then it loses the mandate of heaven, right? In other words, the people are righteous in turning against the government if it can't do the job. And so Deng essentially returned to that Confucian view where, yes, the government is the boss. However, the government has certain responsibilities. It's to keep, uh, you know, whether it's crime, whether it's incomes, job growth, so on. Uh, so that was kind of, I think for people our age, that's how we think of China is it's got this communist decoration on top, but fundamentally it's extremely free market. And I mean, indeed, that's, that, that, that's why China became so rich. Now it's essentially a middle income country, uh, comparable to, you know, Thailand or maybe where Korea was 20 years ago. That is a miraculous change in 30 years. It's arguably, you know, never approached in world history. However, at that point, President Xi comes in and she, 
is much more interested in control over the society, broadly speaking, uh, because one of his formative experiences was the fall of the Soviet Union. And what they learned from that is that it's not just that you want the catch to cat mo- uh, the cat to catch mice, but the cat can sometimes get ideas of its own, right? And so the this economic growth could create these independent power centers. Hey, Peter, can I jump in for a second? Yeah, is that is that you riffing on Deng Xiaoping's famous thing, or does she himself? Did no, he, he update didn't say that? No, no, okay. no. That's that, that, that's my putting words in his mouth. So okay, right. And so uh, he started cracking down on various industries uh, that he thought could be threats to uh, communist power. He he's he's actually targeted specific entrepreneurs. So probably the most prominent entrepreneur in China for going on ten years uh, has been Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba. And he's like Steve Jobs was, maybe what uh, Elon Musk is now. So he's he's the guy that parents would hold up for their kids. Like, why can't you be more like Jack Ma? Why can't mm-hmm. you be a billionaire when you're 30 years old? So very widely respected. Uh, and she disappeared him for a while. Uh, he has disappeared a number of billionaires. Um, you know, there's China has long been very corrupt, which means that Anytime you want to take somebody out, you've got an instant excuse. You just go after them for corruption, mm-hmm. which, of course, has the death penalty. So at that point, you can then uh, negotiate or squeeze whatever you need out of them. Uh, she's cracked down on industry after industry. She's gone after Internet companies, um, uh, DD, which is the uh, local version of Uber. He's gone after AI. He's gone after the private education industry. Uh, which is mostly te- sort of starting out teaching English, and then it started doing supplemental education. And I, I, I suppose they weren't sufficiently eager to follow the state guidance on education. So he's really been going after industry after industry. Now, if we take that to its logical conclusion, just sort of to imagine where that kind of thing can ultimately lead, it would be to something like North Korea, right? So what happens in North Korea is that the country is impoverished, the people are starving, But this is sort of intentional because he doesn't want any local rivals, right? So if you had some steel conglomerate in North Korea, then you could imagine that very quickly becoming a rival for the leadership. Now, she is still light years from North Korea, but he's kind of a mixture of the two. He is much more suspicious of markets than his predecessors were. And as a result, he's been in office, I think, since 2013. And growth over that period in China has been just over 5%. Now, mm-hmm. that's good if you're a rich country. It's not so good if you're China's income level. That's, that's pretty standard. That's lower than Vietnam. It's lower than Ethiopia, lower than India. So the Chinese miracle is not what it used to be, I think, for that reason. And, you know, by the way, China... Can, can I stop? It was in double yeah. digits, right? Like the oh, prior yeah. decade? Oh. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it was in lower double digits. It was basically 10% for, gosh, 25 years which is what got them to this point. But now she has basically half killed the golden goose. And, you know, China, I mean, that's that's essentially official policies, a sort of mixture where you have the state in unquestioned control. The state dominates everything. It brooks no dissent. At the same time as you have this free market economy alongside it, but but the key being the free market economy has to obey the state. So this is like the model that China exports to countries like Saudi Arabia, Africa, it sits down with these guys and it says, look, here's a menu. It's almost like a takeout menu. You say, okay, what do you want? 
Do you want an airport? Do you want a highway? Do you want a train system? Do you want a, you know, uh, oil refinery? Okay, so uh, tell me what you want. And in return, what we want from you is we want access to some of those materials, right? Um, But also, we're going to give you a bunch of advice on how to maintain stability. Not only because we love you, dear dictator, but also to protect our own investments in your country. And so, you know, this is how you cut off uh, color revolutions. This is how you end student protests. Uh, you know, this is how you end non-government organizations. So, I mean, they've been very, very explicit in countering what, uh, what I think <laughs> rightly they view as uh, tools that countries that are not friendly to them use but that model, of course, is, is based on exactly what they do at home, which is complete control uh, over the economy. They want the economy to serve them, right? And this is very much in contrast to the Deng Xiaoping way of thinking where you just let the economy rip. You enforce the laws. That almost looks like classical liberalism. They've abandoned that, I think, at least under Xi. Maybe they'll come back to it, but for the moment. Okay. Um I mean, is, do you know, and maybe it's hard to get inside their heads, but from outward appearances, like, is there a sense in which she is saying we're getting back to like, we're going to be good communists now and, and dang kind of, or, or is there, that's partly right. why before when I was asking, it wasn't really to say, should I credit you, Peter, with that clever extension of the cat <laughs> analogy, but I was curious to know, right. w- would they literally or explicitly, I should say, sort of zing the previous person or is it like oh no you never criticize the previous and everybody's untouchable and now i'm in charge and even if my policies differ we package it as if oh yes we've always been doing this so that's partly what i was wondering like is is there a sense in which he when he was in power saying yep we're you know we're coming we're coming back to to communism we're communists and that's what we're doing here get in line yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I don't get the sense that he is particularly committed to the ideology per se. Uh, I think that what's more important to him is just to not have the state's authority be questioned. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, in terms of which authority he's in love with, I'd say more authoritarianism. He he does not okay. like having a right. polycentric society. Um, you know, in terms of sort of obedience to doctrinaire Marxism. I'm not sure if that's so much a part of it, uh, more that, you know, he he saw what happened in Eastern Europe. Uh, Nikolai Cho, Cho, Chosescu was, uh, I guess, hanging by his ankles. Uh, he doesn't want that kind of thing to happen. And so he, it, that, I sort of interpret it as more real politic, um, tending to the power dynamics in society. Now, in terms of zinging his predecessors, he very openly did that last year. He took the previous president, was sitting next to him at uh, the um, the annual People's Congress, and who had a guy, or uh, she is sitting there chilling, and the previous guy, who is sitting like two down from him, and some goon comes over and tells who to stand up, come on, we're going, and who's like fighting to stay put, like he's, he's, he's like just about holding onto the edge of the table, and this guy drags him out, which is shocking i mean it was it was obviously uh choreographed that sort of thing does not happen by accident in china you get executed for accidenting that kind of thing uh and that was fascinating so uh, you know i think a lot of people interpret at the time as he was dancing or he was he was showing all of his rivals in the other political cliques that you guys are done you are absolutely crushed uh you know those of you who were loyal to this previous model 
you're out of here. You have no pull anymore. I, I can do this to you on TV. And, you know, mm. the whole time when this guy's being dragged off, she is just sitting there. You know, he's got this zen-like Winnie the Pooh thing he pulls. And he's mm. just sitting there like calm as a cucumber, like he doesn't even notice it. What's The reason I'm smiling, Peter, besides just your charm, <laughs> is that I promise you, I'm not saying this for a gay. When you were saying that, you said something like, and so who was being dragged away? And I'm like, it's your story. How the heck do I know? And then, right. I was, oh, right. and then he goes right. to play for space, right? Yeah. <laughs> who was on first? Exactly. <laughs> okay. Is Now, you had mentioned, mm -hmm. since we're kind of giving the listeners a, a primer on Chinese economic policy at this point, can you speak a little bit? Because um, you were talking about how how the Chinese now like they interact with other countries to export their model, is this involved with the Belt and Road Initiative? Is right. that what that? Uh, what they're doing with Africa? Absolutely right. So the, the a lot of the aid that China is giving, uh, they want to get some ROI on that, right? And so the two biggest goals that they pursue in that aid is number one to get access to raw materials. So a sort of iconic version might be that they would go to Angola. They would say, look, you guys are swimming in oil, but you can't get it out. You're not doing anything with it. It's just sitting there rotting in the ground. And so let, you know, we're going to help you build uh, export facilities. But in return, you're going to give us a friend price for a long time. Uh, so that's one kind of model they do. And then the other kind of model they do is that they'll go into countries and basically say, we're going to help you upgrade your you know, port facilities. And again, in return, you're going to let, you can either give us a friend price or you're going to let us run it for a number of years as a concession. And so they've done that in a number of countries. Uh, I know Sri Lanka, uh, they're trying to do some partnerships in the South Pacific. I can't imagine what kind of belt road uh, productivity there is there. But anyway, but that's got the U.S. Uh, military excited anyway. So, right, they've been doing that all over the world, upgrading port facilities, essentially subsidizing the cost of exports from China. I mean, granted, it would also, it would also subsidize the cost of imports into China. But, um, but yeah, that's been a big goal of theirs. And then, you know, people have worried on the one hand because uh, a lot of these countries have so much Chinese debt that people worry that they're, they're sort of falling into debt slavery. And, of course, the counterargument to that is, the old, you know, if you owe the bank a million dollars, you have a problem. If you owe them a billion, they have a problem. And indeed, a lot of these countries in Africa, for example, they owe China really epic amounts of money. And if they decide not to pay them, then realistically, what is China going to do? Can you speak a little bit? I know a, a huge thing, obviously, historically was the one child policy. And then they, my understanding is they at least relaxed that. And then, but people are still saying, oh, but that the, the demographic implications of that are starting. The chickens are coming home to roost with all the, the huge gap between the males and females, is that partly in terms of like long-term issues that China now has to deal with? Yes. The one-child policy is a, it, it's a huge long-term challenge. It's not necessarily a short-term issue. Uh, you know, they've got bigger issues at the moment. But right, the one-child policy was too successful from their perspective. Uh, of course, we would see it as too catastrophic. Uh, and they reversed it. And apparently you can't turn those things on a dime, it turns out. Uh, and so the fertility rate in China, I think it's about 1.2 or something. It's, it's, it's extraordinarily low. Uh, it's pretty close to every generation shrinks in half. Uh, and that's going to hit them long term. You know, for a country like Japan or Korea, it took a lot longer for that demographic transition to hit. Uh, and in China, you've got a couple issues. So one of them is that you have many fewer young people uh, coming into the job market. The society overall 
it's not quite top heavy in terms of seniors yet, simply because, you know, it was poor until uh, pretty recently. Uh, but that is going to be an issue going down the line. And then a third sort of interesting detail here is that when people worry about Chinese military adventurism, the one-child policy has put a, kind of put an interesting dynamic in China where families are very, very reluctant to give up their sons, right? Generally, that's all their eggs in one basket. And however people feel in most countries about sending their children off to uh, wars of choice, in China, I think the government treads very lightly with that now compared to what it did in, say, the Mao days, where it just sort of used Chinese soldiers as like meat grinder, just pile them on heavy and some of them will make it back. So that's comforting in a way because it suggests that if she is going to do something in Taiwan, uh, or he's been saber-rattling with Vietnam uh, or Japan and Korea. If he's going to do something there, it is unlikely to be um, bloody. He's probably very aware of the repercussions of, um, you know, a lot of coffins coming home. Uh, but at the same, I mean, we, we'd, we'd want to get that into that in a different podcast, sort of the uh, trade-offs, uh, what the governments are working with. Um, but I think in short, if China, if she is genuinely threatened, uh, which I don't think he is at the moment, I think he's actually been uh, shockingly successful for observers at consolidating power. But if he does get in a situation where he is vulnerable, maybe if the economy keeps crashing or something, then I think it becomes a lot more likely that he engages in some kind of adventurism, some kind of aggression towards Taiwan or Vietnam or maybe other countries because he'll be in a situation where he's got to do something, right? He's got to kind of shake up uh, the game or he's doomed. So uh, it, until recently, with most discussions on what's China going to do about Taiwan, I've generally been saying, look, she's doing fine. She's not going to change a thing. He's not dumb. Uh, you know, if you're a rabbit running away from a greyhound and you're faster, you don't zigzag. You just keep going. You're winning. You're doing fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if this economic turmoil now turns into something serious, then I think that we could see uh, more drama coming out of China. Okay, so Peter, as we were mentioning before, I uh, before we started recording here, that I had years ago seen Jim Rogers. It was actually at a Mises Institute event where uh, I think he was getting some kind of award or something, and he mentioned how. The uh, the British Empire, it was, you know, they were associated with the 19th century. The American Empire was the 20th century, and he thought the Chinese Empire was going to be the 21st century, and that's why he was moving his family to Singapore. He was getting uh, a native Mandarin speaker to give uh, lessons to his, I think, daughter and so forth. It was he, he just thought that China is the wave of the future economically and Militarily, I guess it just again. He just thought the Chinese Empire is going to dominate the 21st century in the ways that you know the U.S. and the British had earlier. So I'm just wondering, the stuff we're talking about today, does that throw a monkey wrench into it, or is it just that yes, one's like a short-term thing and one's more long-term pattern? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I myself had moved to Japan in 1991 to learn Japanese. I was going to be an exchange student, and then I was going to join the elite that were taking over the entire earth. And like literally six months later, Japan collapsed and fell into a 30-year doldrum. So <laughs> I had already learned Japanese. I was like, couldn't she have done it six months earlier? 
So I'm sympathetic to the risks of moving to a country because it has very smart leadership or apparently smart leadership and then that failing. I think in, you know, if we sort of zoom out to the long run, we can sort of get towards uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe style questions about, you know, whether democracy is the best way to run a place or whether there should be some sort of um, oligarchic. Uh, sort of consensus, which China has been. I think during the miracle years, China was, of course, not democratic, but it also wasn't really autocratic. They had a uh, fairly large, at least 1,500-person uh, elite. Those were then functionally joined by a lot of entrepreneurs. So you had sort of this oligarchy of maybe, I mean, maybe several tens of thousands uh, who were running China. And interestingly, of course, that's also true in the golden age of Britain, Right, so Britain, when it was ruling the waves, was not a democracy. Just you know, you couldn't you could just go vote in Britain, just show up. Uh, you had to have some money in, so that functionally limited the electorate to very small, uh, functionally oligarchy. And empirically, you know, if we sort of try to trace out the parallels between China and Britain, uh, they were both run by fairly altruistic oligarchs, and there were enough of them that they didn't actually take over the place and run it into the ground. Um, you know, if you've got 5,000 oligarchs trying to decide policy, generally the main thing that they're going to agree on is to leave each other alone. Uh, whereas if you have five oligarchs, that's really when it goes badly. Uh, and so, you know, I think in terms of is China going to be the future, it really comes down to how does this Xi situation resolve? You know, so is China post Xi? I mean, Xi is mortal. He'd probably be around for a while, but let's give him 10 years. Uh, once she is gone, uh, uh, depending on what his legacy is, depending on what kinds of people or what kind of infrastructure, um, sort of political infrastructure he's built up for his successors, is China going to go back to that sort of benign oligarchy that, you know, made it uh, so, uh, sort of such a miracle economy in the first place? Or on the other hand, are they going to continue down this road of authoritarianism that takes them? I mean, obviously, there's a long ways to go before they get to North Korea, but moves them towards that route. If they do, then at that point, they're just yet another third world country doing third world things. So, and I think it's very unlikely that we're going to go directly from Xi to some kind of uh, democratic renaissance, uh, specifically because China saw that precise thing happen in the Soviet Union or in the former East Bloc. They didn't like it at all. They're building a very, very competent police state, really the likes of which humanity has never seen, uh, to prevent that from happening. So I think that the most likely thing, you know, during the next, say, 10 years under Xi, we're probably going to continue having this sort of slow growth, sort of India, Latin America-style growth. After Xi, that's going to be the $64,000 question is, does China go back? Or does it continue declining into one-man rule? Okay, well, thanks for that. Um, I guess the last big topic I want to ask your thoughts on, Peter, because I know we, we get this a lot, is the issue of the U.S. dollar being the world's reserve currency. And so I think sometimes the, the position is misconstrued. So I know I put something on Twitter recently, and people were biting my head off, uh, like friendly people. Um, uh, <laughs> Um, I'm trying to shoot. I'm trying to think who the guy, what the guy's name, uh, like Mish, and, and it was somebody else too. And I can't remember the names escaping me. But people who are friends of you know the Austrian economics friend, and they were lecturing me as to why the Chinese currency could never, and even like some combination of things issued by the BRICS, would never supplant the U.S. dollars being the world's reserve currency. And so, just to clarify, 
it's not that I thought the you know the yuan or renminbi, whatever we call it in this context, would be the new world reserve currency. I just meant the it was going to be more of a multipolar global economy yeah. as opposed to just dominated by the U.S. So can you just you know so again big picture like global reserve currency. What do you see happen in the next twenty years? Yeah, I think you're right. Um, you know, the issue with the dollar losing its reserve status is that you can't beat something with nothing, right? So there's got to be something else. And there was a time when that would have been gold. Uh, but of course, you know, there's a distance between here and there. And so the main candidates today would be the Japanese yen, the euro, and the Chinese renminbi, or the yuan, and, you know, the euro and, and uh, yen have pretty much the same problems that the U.S. does. Um, in, in some cases, they're worse. In some cases, you know, maybe monetary policy in Japan is a little bit better. Um, regulation, economic growth in Europe is worse. Uh, now, granted, neither country sanctions other countries or steals their dollars uh, for their policies. So, you know, that, that was really the biggest own goal that the U.S. did was seizing Russian central bank dollars. They seized, I think, about $400 billion, which in terms of the Russian economy, that would be like seizing $4 trillion. And the goal when they did that was to crash the Russian banking system to, you know, hopefully uh, uh, make Putin lose the war. But what ended up happening is that countries all over the world took a look at that, like, it was a big conference in Southeast Asia. The president of Indonesia literally said, we have to get away from the dollar because look what they did to Russia. So these weren't necessarily countries that liked Russia or sympathized with the war. The issue was that America had never before done that, right? They'd never before come in and said, all these dollars that form the basis of your banking system, guess what? If you do something I don't like, they're gone, right? Even during the Cold War, we had multiple hot wars all over the world, never ever did that. Why? Because the larger issue was maintaining the U.S. dollar's reserve currency. You even want your enemies to be dependent on that. So that's the one thing where, uh, you know, the yen, the euro, the Swiss franc, the Canadian dollar, no other country can or does engage in that kind of thing. And indeed, over the past year, a lot of the erosion that we've seen in market share of the dollar has gone to those other sort of normal uh, freely traded currencies. And then on the question of the yuan, the yuan is, it is controlled. Honestly, I don't think that's a deal breaker in the sense that, you know, mainly what China's controlling is the value of the yuan. So they have capital controls, uh, you know, you, you have to get a license to export yuan. But fundamentally, that doesn't really affect you. If you're talking about yuan, like physical paper yuan, or sort of uh, what would be like euro dollar type yuan running around outside of China, really what matters there is the supply and the demand. Is this thing holding up its value? So I think that it is theoretically possible that a yuan could be reserve currency. I think it's extraordinarily unlikely, uh, certainly not in the near term, just because, I mean, as we've seen in the past couple of weeks, China has a lot of its own problems. Um, there's a lot more happening that we don't hear about. You know, there are hundreds of, of violent riots every year in China that we never, ever hear about because they're suppressed. They're suppressed within China. Chinese don't even know about them. Uh, so China's got a lot of issues. And, you know, the uh, constrained convertibility of the yuan, I think, definitely makes it less attractive for financial purposes. Uh, but I don't think that's insurmountable because the key element of a currency, even if it's gold, 
you know, if you're holding gold, uh, nobody runs gold, right? I mean, all, all, all you care about when you make the decision to shift your, re, your, your assets from, say, the dollar to gold, you're interested in, will it hold its value and what are the transaction costs? And those are both completely, uh, you know, if enough people are using the yuan, if, if people in Panama and Mexico are saving in the yuan, then it, it is completely possible that the transaction costs uh, and the ability to hold its value could be both superior to the dollar. I think what's the most likely kind of uh, science fiction or I guess fun to imagine or fun to discuss scenario is what if BRICS uh, came together and put out some sort of gold-backed currency. And China and Russia have both hinted at that. Um, you know, Russia is probably not able to support that kind of thing at the moment. They've got bigger problems. Uh, China at this point also has bigger problems. So it may not be something that's happening in the near term, but as an Austrian economist, it would be interesting to note that, you know, the main goal that BRIC, that China has when it's going after the U.S. dollar is that it doesn't like the fact that the U.S. is so dominant in the world economy that it can sort of bully other countries, uh, that you know the U.S. derives this massive benefit from being able to print up little pieces of confetti and have people give them toasters and, and uh, copper mines for it. So China doesn't like that. And it is possible that China could sort of sponsor uh, a move towards some kind of gold-backed currency not necessarily because China would use it domestically, right? In fact, China would prefer to keep using the yuan so they can uh, subsidize their exports, but so they could use that gold sort of rail as a way to displace the dollar to weaken the U.S. So that, I think, is the most likely scenario where BRICS amounts to anything. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen in the near term, but I think that, that for China, that would achieve a lot of their objectives. Uh, it would substantially knock the U.S. out in many ways, you know, it would weaken the U.S.'s ability to bully other countries, but it would also mean that, uh, you know, if you can radically reduce demand for U.S. dollars, this then means there's a bunch of extra dollars in the world. Those could go back to the U.S. That could then drive inflation in the U.S., which again would weaken uh, the U.S. versus China. So I think that there are a lot of benefits to China specifically in sponsoring that kind of a gold-backed uh, BRICS currency. It would only use it as a trade rail. Nobody would want that as a domestic currency because all countries like to um, make their currencies weak now to promote exports. Um, and I have talked it over, uh, sort of gone back and forth uh, with Mish. And yeah, I think your point of view uh, is correct. Mish has a particular style that sometimes comes off as a little bit more confrontational. Um, but yeah, I, I would agree with you. Okay, well, thanks for, yeah, for that uh, comprehensive response there. So, yeah, just real briefly, I'm looking at the clock here. We should probably wrap this up. But I think you're, to me, that was always the real interesting thing is I, I remember, like you say, Ru Russia, some Russian minister years ago holding up something and saying, this is going to be the new world's reserve currency, and it was supposed to be a gold-backed ruble or something. And, and so, yeah, the people have been toying yes. with that. Not that this would be the, yep. the hey, heyday of the classical gold standard you know, times. I think that genie's out of the bottle at this point. But um, you know, that's what I would do. If, if some of these countries were asking me for advice, say, how do we get the dollar out of its role right now? I would say tie your currency to gold or you know, some basket yep. of commodities and, and stick to it. And after the first crisis comes and goes, if you stick to it, 
then investors will take you seriously, and that's how you could do it. And by the way, it'll be good for your people too. You know, that's an added bonus if you if you actually yeah. care about the welfare of your own people. Okay, so why don't we wrap up there? Uh, thank you, Peter, for your time. Uh, you're sort of the resident Asian markets expert now in terms of the stable people <laughs> on the Human Action Podcast. So thanks for, for your insights. For better or for worse, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for having me on, Bob. It is always a joy to visit. So, <laughs> And thank you, everyone. It's always a joy to have you here and listening to us pontificate, and we will see you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org. <laughs>